Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing the future of the Toronto Argonauts quarterback situation. CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi remaining bullish on expansion. Ogie Fajargo's future with the Saskatchewan Rough Raggers. The CFL finishing this season with over 13% more scoring than the NFL. And the pending free agency of Bo Levi Mitchell and Trevor Harris. But first, Nathan Rourke signed a contract with Jacksonville Jaguars on Sunday, bringing an end to his tour of NFL workouts following an outstanding season with the BC Lions. The Canadian phenom hopes to win the number two job behind former first overall NFL draft pick Trevor Lawrence with the long-term goal of proving he can start in the league. Was this the right move for Rourke? I think it's a good move for Rourke. Now, I know there was a lot of speculation about what destination he might end up in, and a lot of people raised some eyebrows when it ended up being Jacksonville because of how well-established Trevor Lawrence is in front of him, right? There is not an easy path to the field here. Lawrence is a generational quarterback. And it would take a major injury for Rourke to see any playing time in the regular season with the Jaguars. But there's a couple things that that people need to keep in mind. First of all, quarterback situations in the NFL are extremely fluid. And any sort of chaos or uncertainty, that's the enemy of a CFL quarterback. The enemy of a guy coming in with very little acclaim, which is the case for Nathan Rourke, trying to carve out a job. He doesn't want to sign with a team and then instantly be replaced by a draft pick or a free agent. And I went through the process a couple months ago, guys, of of going through every single NFL team and ranking where I thought they would land on the list of best destinations for Nathan Rourke. Jacksonville was sort of middle of the pack. But I'll tell you what, guys, within two weeks of me making that list of all 32 NFL teams – It was entirely useless. I had the L.A. Rams as my number one destination. Well, all of a sudden, Matthew Stafford went down. They brought in Baker Mayfield. So now they've got two established quarterbacks and Sean McVay is considering stepping away from coaching. So you don't know who's going to be in place there. Now my number one destination is not a place you want to be. Same thing with the Las Vegas Raiders, who were a team I had ranked highly on the list, who worked out Nathan Rourke, who Rourke said were very interested in him, similarly to the Jacksonville Jaguars very early on. Well, at the start of this process, you might have thought this was a perfect spot for Nathan Rourke because Derek Carr is well-established veteran who's not on completely great footing but had enough money uh, being paid to him that he might stick around for a year or two more. Well, the Raiders decided to be aggressive. They're going to move on from Derek Carr now. All of a sudden, that's no longer a good destination for Nathan Rourke. So a lot of these places that we 
on the outside had sort of pegged and said, okay, this is a great spot. This is, you know, a good fit for Nathan Rourke. Some of them became bad fits throughout the last couple weeks, the last couple months, and others of them simply weren't interested for one reason or another. So Nathan had to choose from who wanted him and what the best situations are. And, and frankly, with Jacksonville, what he's getting is stability, right? He knows what's happening there. They're going to be comfortable with a small quarterback room because of how confident they are in Trevor Lawrence. And that'll give him a legitimate shot to be the backup next year with likely very little competition around him. I mean, they went into the season this year with C.J. Beathard and E.J. Perry, an undrafted free agent from Brown University, as their quarterbacks. Nathan Rourke can slot right in there. Uh, both of those guys are, are pending free agents. He can beat either of them out, beat out whoever they might bring in as a, as a low-level free agent, and take that number two job and start to establish himself in the NFL because no one was giving him a starting job. Let's make this absolutely clear for CFL fans. That was not on the table. Nobody was handing this out. This is not 1980, okay? NFL teams have 100 different ways to find quarterbacks. They are not handing a CFL guy a starting reign. The fact that he is getting offered a legitimate chance to back up is important, and it's a big opportunity for him. He had to seize that, seize that and start getting tape right? Preseason tape, potentially if, if Lawrence gets nicked up for a game here or there, he can get in on the regular season in the regular season and establish himself. So maybe down the line in a year or two, there's a team out there that needs a quarterback that says, Hey, Jacksonville, would you like to send us Nathan Rourke? And then he can take that step to be a starter, which we all know he's capable of. This is a long-term NFL play, and the answer to Hodge's original question is yes. I believe it is the right move when you look at it from a different number of aspects. And also talking to Mr. Rourke about it, I spoke with him for over 30 minutes very soon after he made this decision, and he said that Jacksonville was number one from the get-go after he shifted his attention from the CFL season being over, losing in that West Final that you covered, Hodge, and... Rourke looking to the NFL and a large reason for that was because the Jaguars showed a very strong interest at the beginning and then when he went down there for his workout everyone associated with that team on the coaching staff in the front office watched the workout he did not actually talk to head coach Doug Peterson that day but he spent a lot of time with Mike McCoy the quarterback's coach who's been in the NFL for over 20 years Talked a little bit with Press Taylor, their offensive coordinator. Of course, Henry Burris was there. He's on staff there as an offensive quality control coach. And Burris was a big advocate for Rourke, but he also gave Rourke unbiased advice as to how to approach this NFL-CFL decision because Burris has been through it before. So he didn't necessarily say, hey, got to come to Jacksonville because I'm here. And we spent a little bit of time together with BC before Burris got that job in Jacksonville. It was about the right situation for Rourke. And Rourke really truly believes, like in his heart, that the Jaguars have his best interest in mind. Now, to go along with that, things in the NFL change very quickly. And Rourke has to go and compete. He's not going to be handed the backup job. So as much as they want to see him be successful and he believes that he needs to show them and reward that faith in him based on watching the CFL film 
that he put out there from the 2022 season that was incredible for half a year. So overall, JC, you made a bunch of smart points, but this is about Nathan Rourke developing in the NFL, showing he can play the NFL style of game, which is much different to the CFL. And it's about what I'm calling building NFL equity because Rourke said it himself. It's one thing for him to come back to the CFL and continue to put up great numbers here and ooh and off fans in Canada, but that doesn't hold much weight in the NFL. And you're not going to be handed a starter's job. He's still young, 24 when he signed this contract with Jacksonville. He will be 25 this year. Guys, that's just as old as Stetson Bennett is coming out in the draft from the University of Georgia, the two-time national champion. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that they're comparable, but Rourke at least has two years of pro experience, one year behind a guy like Michael Riley, learning how to go about things as a pro. And obviously, we know the great half season that he had, the historic pace that he was on. So I think he would be, in some people's minds at least, a little bit above Bennett, because of him being in a pro atmosphere, but Bennett's played the American game at a higher level, arguably, than Rourke because he was in the Southeastern Conference. So Rourke needs to get down to the NFL now, start that development process, and build equity around the league. Because when it comes time, either his contract up after three years with Jacksonville or as JC alluded to, another team wants to trade for him, they're going to talk to Doug Peterson and get an honest assessment of him, or Peterson's going to talk to his buddies around the league and tell them what's going on with Rourke. Press Taylor's going to be the same, and just the same with the rest of the coaching staff and front office there. So that, more than anything else, will be valuable for Rourke as he works towards being, in his words, an NFL starter. That's the goal for Rourke here, as much as some people might scoff at it, want him to stay in the CFL, think he's going for that big money. Like it or not, the NFL financially is a smarter decision for Rourke, and it is the league that gets the most eyeballs and the league that Rourke believes has the toughest competition. So that's why he's made this decision. It's about fulfilling a childhood dream, and it's just the first step. So even if you think it's stupid that he signed with a team that just drafted a guy very recently, number one overall, it's just the beginning. It's about where he wants to get to, and he feels like this is the best start. Yeah, you guys remember, and and this is going probably 10 years back, but Matt Flynn got into one game for the Green Bay Packers. I think it was 2011, and he threw like four touchdown passes, and that one game was enough for the Seattle Seahawks to give him a big boatload of money to come be their starter. Now, he didn't end up being the starter. He got beaten out by a rookie named Russell Wilson, who was great for about 10 years and has stunk for the last couple. But this is a league, right, where one one game as a quarterback can make you the, the hottest ticket in town, so to speak. And so if Nathan Rourke wants to go be a backup for a year, try to learn as much as he can, and then maybe, you know, and you never wish for an injury to happen, obviously, but if Trevor Lawrence is unable to play a game due to injury or maybe he gets sat down, because the Jaguars have clinched a playoff spot early, which, by the way, was the exact circumstance that took place with the Packers back when Aaron Rodgers got sat for a game late in the year, Matt Flynn came in. Then he has that opportunity, right? And if he goes out there and he throws three interceptions, do you think the CFL isn't going to want him back? Like, to me, that's the number one thing at play here. 
It doesn't matter what Nathan Rourke does in the NFL. He could be the worst NFL quarterback in the history of the league. And guess what? Every CFL team is going to want to clamor to sign him. Why? Because first of all, he was the best quarterback in the CFL this past season. And secondly, he's got that Canadian passport. Not only is that useful for the ratio, but obviously we've seen how he's resonated with fans north of the border. People like the fact that he's Canadian. He's easy to cheer for because he's Canadian. Other than the fact, of course, that that he's a likable, affable young man. Um, so to me, this decision absolutely makes sense for Nathan Rourke. To me, it's obvious to make the jump. Obviously, not only is there the money involved, but if you stay in the CFL at this point, you're probably never going to the NFL. And Nathan made that very clear. If you stay in the CFL for too long, you're never going down south. So to me, the decision is easy. If you stay in the CFL, you're probably never going to the NFL. If you go to the NFL, great. You can come back to the CFL whenever you want. And I'm sure there's going to be nine teams that want to sign Nathan in Canada if he does wash out of the NFL. You absolutely nailed it there, Hodge. And, you know, it's understandable that there's a lot of CFL fans that are rooting for Rourke. And there's also a lot of people who feel sad that he's leaving or upset. And and that's okay, right? There's a mix of emotions here. And I think we all loved having him in the league and having that storyline and watching him have the success that he did. It, it fulfilled a, a, a dream that a lot of us had that one day a Canadian quarterback could have that level of success. It was a validating. It was fantastic to watch, but this is the right decision for Rourke, right? It is extremely low risk, as you have mentioned, Hodge. And it's also important to note on the financial side, right, that this is the correct decision because Rourke's contract this year, whatever he ends up being at, at the NFL level, is going to pay him more money than the BC Lions could have if they made him the highest paid quarterback in the league, right? If they gave him a contract that was $600,000 like Zach Caleros, his his deal next year with the Jaguars is $750,000 USD. So add in the conversion rate, and there's a, an even bigger gap there as well. And some people might look at that $750,000 mark and go, oh, well, that's not that much, right? That's not a not a huge difference. That's not what I thought. Cause sometimes we see guys go down and have this big workout tour, like a cam wake and someone throws a million dollar signing bonus at them. Well, that legally was not allowed in the case of Nathan Rourke. And I, I don't think a lot of fans realize this because he had never signed an NFL contract before he counts as an undrafted free agent. For all intents and purposes, just as uh, as Dunk made the comparison, he is Stetson Bennett this year, right? He counts as a part of this upcoming draft class as an undrafted rookie because he'd never signed previously. And there is a pool, a cap of money for undrafted free agents that limits what teams are able to spend on them and how much signing bonus money they're allowed to give. So Rourke got at the top end of what you're able to to offer in terms of contracts to these guys and he couldn't have made any more money or gotten a huge signing bonus. The only way he can do that is by going down to the NFL and earning that wouldn't matter if he became the greatest player to ever play in CFL history. And all of a sudden it changed every perception that NFL teams would ever have about CFL quarterbacks. 
I mean, that wasn't going to happen to begin with, but even in that hypothetical scenario, he couldn't go down to the NFL and cash in with a $5 million, $10 million deal right off the bat. That couldn't happen. He was going to make this amount of money no matter what. That's why the fit was so important for where he was going to go. And with Jacksonville, he's got some stability to be able to take the next step in his career. From a financial perspective, too, you have to look at the upside. $600,000 right now is the ceiling in the CFL in terms of the highest amount that you can make on a contract. Now, it's arguable that Rourke could push that higher because of his Canadian passport, but Zach Caleros has two MOPs. He's the reigning league MOP two times and has two Grey Cups as a starter with Winnipeg. So Rourke doesn't have that on his resume, but that is... The ceiling, the floor in the NFL is a contract that he's signed. And you could argue the ceiling in some ways is uncapped. Now, I'm not saying he's going to get to this level, but Patrick Mahomes signed a contract that was worth half a billion dollars. Like that's the type of upside that you're looking at if you're Rourke. Maybe you're not getting a Patrick Mahomes type deal, but you could get tens of millions of dollars, as Hodge alluded to, if you just play one game really well because the NFL is so quarterback needy. There was over 60 quarterbacks during the last NFL regular season that started games. And I would say at least half, if not more, probably more, Rourke can be better than if he's in the system down there. You have to be in the mix. You can't be watching from the outside of the party and feel like you're in the middle of it and getting to know people, you have to be in there doing the darn thing. So that's what Rourke realized he needed to do, and he's willing to give up the opportunity to play meaningful reps in the CFL and build his star in Canada to go and take this shot in the NFL. I think it's very smart. I don't think it would have been smart for him to come back to the CFL, heal up and play another year, because you need to get down there and take advantage of this as soon as you can, because time is ticking. Yes, he's only 24 now, and he's going to turn 25 this year. But if he's going to develop and then get to the point where he is an NFL starter, that's going to take some time. So I think Rourke realized that as well. So I think CFL fans, the hardcores who are upset about him leaving, need to understand the opportunity that's at play for him here. And he can always come back. And we know he can be a star here and he can get that money that's on the table. So it's not just about looking at the difference in salary now. And some people might think it's small. It's about the upside of the NFL. And it's also something that Rourke grew up watching. He's clearly an NFL first kid, even though he grew up in Canada, born in Victoria, raised in Oakville, now is back out in BC at his parents' house before he might find a place of residence in Duval County, in Jacksonville. So I think that's how people need to understand this situation for Rourke. He's young enough, and the upside from so many perspectives is there in the NFL that just aren't comparable to the CFL. And co-general manager Neil McAvoy for the BC Lions admitted as much to me at the winter meetings in a piece that we have on 3 We're all done with Rourke. Hodge, you don't have another take? 20 minutes in, boys? No. I, I think I think our listeners are ready for a new topic. <laughs> Wait, we don't want to get into the MOP debate again? Because I got points. 
I sensed that that was coming when Hodge said that Rourke was the best QB in the CFL. Last I are, my eyebrows raised. I said, hmm, <laughs> "Sounds like he might have been the most outstanding quarterback as well." Hmm. That, I guess uh, Hodge chose his words carefully there, eh, buddy? The uh, I, I guess you thought of it as as a debate. I I more thought of it as me just espousing common sense and you being a child, but. <laughs> We we can have I a, a, call it a debate. So we, that's oh, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, we'll get her going to a different topic. Ryan Didwitty and Mike Pinball Clemens played coy regarding the future of McLeod Bethel Thompson at the winter meetings. Who is said to be considering retirement? The pair also made it clear that they would be comfortable with Grey Cup hero Chad Kelly, the CFL's best impersonation of Matt Flynn in recent memory. <laughs> They would be comfortable with him as a starter if Bethel Thompson did not return. What should the Argos do at the QB position? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot since your interviews at the CFL's offseason winter meeting stunk. And the longer that I think about it, the more I feel like the Argos should move on from McLeod Bethel Thompson. And that's not to say that McLeod Bethel Thompson is not at least a decent quarterback. This is a guy who has led the CFL in passing yards, and he has led the CFL in passing touchdowns. Uh, to me, he's probably the most underrated quarterback ever to do that, or at least maybe the most underappreciated quarterback ever to do that. Because lots of great quarterbacks, even guys in the Hall of Fame, didn't accomplish both of those things at least once in their career. That being said, McLeod Bethel Thompson, I thought, was poor in the Great Cup game. When the lights were their brightest, he seemed to be at his worst. It's a small sample size, but it's ultimately the most important game of the year. And secondly, this is a a situation where I think the Toronto Argonauts almost have the opportunity to be the BC Lions of 2022. And what I mean by that is they're paying McLeod Bethel Thompson in the neighborhood of 400 grand. They paid a bunch of money to Jagera Davis, a bunch of money to Andrew Harris, a bunch of money to Brandon Banks this past season. And while none of those guys had a bad year, I don't think that Banks and Harris and Davis lived up to their you know star power that they've had in the past. I'm not sure the Argos got the best bang for their buck for those deals. And so if I'm Mike Pinball Clements and I'm looking at my roster, if I let those vets walk, including McLeod Bethel Thompson, suddenly I've got like 800 thousand to to a million dollars to play with and if you've got free agents coming aboard potentially like you know a guy like Gino Lewis who who I don't think is is super close to an extension with the Montreal Alouettes uh, or any of the players that we have on our top 25 free agent list here at three down nation I think that Toronto can get younger and I also think that they can get better this is a great opportunity to do that and pass the torch we know that McLeod Bethel Thompson needs some more time to think about his future, but to me, he has to make his mind up in a hurry because at least I would be concerned about the team moving on without me. Here I was thinking I was going to be all out alone on an island with this take, and <laughs> Hodge has finally, at least on this topic, seen some seen some common sense <laughs> here. Now, I've written about this in the past uh, and why I think the Toronto Argonauts should move on from McLeod Bethel Thompson. Now, I I don't think it's necessarily a view that's shared throughout the Toronto Argonauts uh, organization at this stage based on some conversations with uh, that I had with some people after I wrote that article. But to me, it makes sense. And this is nothing against Macbeth, right? 
He is, you know, I've been accused of being critical of him in the past, but really I'm not. I like McLeod Bethel Thompson. I like him as a dude and I like him enough as a quarterback. I think he's very solid. And I think there's a lot of teams in the CFL that would pay a lot of money to have just solid quarterbacking right now when they didn't have it a year ago. But you know what he is, right? Despite the fact that he led the league in passing yards last year and the team went to the Grey Cup and won it, I don't think there's anyone who would point to McLeod Bethel Thompson and say, oh, that's the reason the Argos were good last year, right? He's the dude who put them over the top. He's not a guy necessarily that's going to elevate every run everyone around him. I think with a good supporting cast in the right situation, when he's he's firing on all cylinders, he's a very good CFL quarterback. And that's a good thing to have. But the problem is with Chad Kelly, you've got a prospect that basically since he came out of college, CFL teams have circled and said, this is a guy with insane tools that because of some off season, uh, off the field issues, is is probably going to fall in our laps and could be a sensational starter. And while we haven't seen a lot of him, we've seen the flashes of what that could look like. His one start, there were some throws in there that there are, there are very few other quarterbacks in the CFL that can make throws like that. They're risky, yes, but nobody else has the arm strength or the mobility to even attempt them. You saw what he was like coming in on the Grey Cup just with his ability to run the football and the confidence with which he carries himself. So this is potentially a very special prospect and a prospect who a wants to get on the field as quickly as possible. So he's not going to wait around and sign a second contract if he doesn't get an opportunity and B is going to be 29 years old next year. So you have to move now. The evaluation has to happen now. And if there's any part of you that thinks that Chad Kelly can be that guy who puts a team over the top, who elevates everyone around him instead of just being a good part of the group, if he's one of those top two, three quarterbacks in the league that are truly special, like Nathan Burke was last year, then you have to make the move on him and you have to take the shot and give him an opportunity. And if you fail, which is entirely possible, right, then you have to live with those consequences. And, and this is why there's hesitancy to do moves like this, because it's a what have you done for me lately world and guys are worried about their jobs. But if you hit, you are talking about, you know, a, a situation where you're not just a one-time Grey Cup champion. You're a, a routine contender every single year. If you can get a guy who is that level now. I'm not saying Chad Kelly is for sure, but he has the tools and you need to give him a chance to show you whether or not he is. There are signs pointing to Chad Kelly being the Argonaut starter to start the 2023 season. It goes back to the Grey Cup celebration at Maple Leaf Square in downtown Toronto. McLeod Bethel Thompson was not there. He was back home with his family, which is totally fine, but he appeared via video and it was Chad Kelly not Enoch Mwam, but not Ryan Dinwiddie, not one of the veterans on that team that had been there for a while, let's say like a Declan Cross. It was Chad Kelly that carried the Grey Cup out onto that stage when the Argos came out. And if you go either listen to, watch, or read about the interviews that I did with Michael Pinball Clemens and Ryan Dinwiddie at the league's winter meetings, they are, if nothing but waxing poetic, 
googly-eyed, going goo-goo-gaga over Chad Kelly. His on-the-field talent, yes, but also talking about what it could mean to the Argos off the field. And you guys would agree, we've seen it, and this is rare for the Argos, and this is no disrespect, it's just the truth, that when we write about Chad Kelly on the site, people read it in droves. It is some of our most read stuff in terms of an individual. Like Chad Kelly is already right there with a Bolivar Mitchell or a Cody Fajardo. We'll see if the Fajardo stuff continues when he's not with the Rough Riders, but he's right up there as being one of those people that has quickly developed a persona in the CFL, but part of it is because of his connection to Buffalo, being the nephew of Jim Kelly, who took the Bills to four straight Super Bowls, and of course is a pro football Hall of Fame quarterback. So I think that could drive some interest in Toronto. I don't think that's going to fill BMO Field, but if people get to spend some time around Chad Kelly or get to see them in any form or fashion in Toronto, I think that could interest some fans to get out there and watch him because he is a very confident dude who clearly likes to party but is putting the work in as if he's going to be the starter. So a lot of signs are adding up to me that it will be Kelly. And one of them, quite frankly, was Clemens in Dinwiddie talking about wanting to be patient with McLeod Bethel-Thompson and the fact that he just hit surgery on that broken thumb that he sustained in the Grey Cup game. And he's rehabbing and they want to give him some time. But what did the Ottawa Red Blacks just do? They extended Jeremiah Masoli, put another year on his contract, coming off a nasty leg injury that some people feared might end his career. But they've committed to him in mid-January. The Argos are not doing that with McLeod Bethel-Thompson, and I think if it was a guy that they wanted to bring back, the deal would already be done. Now, part of it could be related to Bethel-Thompson and him not necessarily being sure if he was going to play or wanted to play in 2023, but I think if you put $400,000 in front of him and over $100,000 signing bonus in front of him, then he could probably make that decision rather quickly. Yeah, I think one thing you might be concerned about if you are looking to get young, and I've been speaking about, you know, even more guys on the roster who are aging, one of whom the Argos have already moved on from, that being, of course, Brandon Banks. But you mentioned Enoch Buamba there, Dunk. Enoch Buamba was was carrying the Grey Cup around, I think, basically every last square inch of Toronto for what seemed like, you know, two weeks post-Grey Cup. To me, he is a perfect example of an aging veteran who the team could hang on to as a savvy leader. We spent a lot of time with the Argos during Grey Cup week. It's clear that Mwamba is a great leader in that room. Darius Bladdock, the starting offensive guard, I think is a very good leader in that room. Sean Oakman, I think, has taken on a good leadership role along the defensive line. So there are leaders elsewhere on the team that I think could pick up some of the slack that has maybe been missing. And obviously, we've seen the team really, right, rally around Chad Kelly. They obviously love spending time with Chad Kelly. And if you have any off-field concerns about him, I think there are still enough vets, even moving on from the guys who I mentioned, to 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 bring that back. And by the way, we talk about veteran leadership. You know, Brandon Banks threw a hissy fit on the sideline this year that we all saw. We know that McLeod Bethel-Thompson has had a few questionable on-field moments as well, judgment-wise, including pushing a cameraman. Full credit to me, apologize. But my point is, if the team needs to uh, get a little bit better in the leadership department or maybe needs to find better leaders, maybe this is a way to do it and get younger at the same time. 
Riders head coach Craig Dickinson said that bringing Cody Fajardo back for the 2023 season is, quote, a big maybe, close quote. Fajardo is a pending free agent who was benched at the end of the year with the club's playoff hopes still hanging in the balance. Do you see any way that these two sides could come together for another year? You can never say never in pro football, and and there have been reunions of sides that have hated each other far more than these two that have happened in the past. <laughs> but if if Cody Fajardo and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are back together next season in any capacity, it is a worst-case scenario for both the club and the player because what it means is there was not a considerable amount of attention uh, for Cody Fajardo in free agency as, for the role that he wanted. And so he went through that carousel and he had to land back with the organization that didn't want him anymore, presumably in a backup capacity or on the Rough Riders side, side, it means that they've lost out on whoever else they had targeted on the market and weren't able to get a guy and had to go back to Kogi Fajardo as either insurance or, you know, God forbid the starter next season, right? It's, it's not a good situation for either team if they, or either group, if they end up reunited. Now that's not to say that Kogi Fajardo might not have more in the tank, for another organization, right? I think he can still be a CFL quarterback. I think if he gets out of the microscope that is uh, Regina, he may have success elsewhere where he's a little bit more anonymous. He'll be a very solid backup. He's a guy I might even target if I was BC to come in and pair with Vernon Adams Jr., you know, perhaps uh, uh, bring a little bit more uh, balance um, to that room as well. Um, but putting him back in Saskatchewan would just be a bad fit because you've already made the decision to move on. There's hurt feelings. It's, it wasn't done particularly artfully uh, by the riders organization. And it's hard. It's very hard to come back from that. Let's look at this situation from Cody Fajardo's perspective. Okay. He comes in for this team in 2019 after Zach Caleros goes down very early in week one game that hit from Simone Lawrence and plays spectacularly under Stephen McAdoo is a CFL all-star, the West division nominee for the MOP. There's the COVID year. Then they decide to bring in Jason Moss. So he's learning a new offense in 2021. He's still able to guide the riders to a playoff spot into the West final. They don't win, but it was pretty close. Hodge, you saw that game up close and personal he was pretty close to getting Saskatchewan to the Grey Cup in 21. And then in 2022, he's playing behind an offensive line. And Jeremy O'Day didn't exactly say that they took turns being turnstiles, but he essentially said they took turns having poor plays. And that added up to over 70 sacks total. Fajardo took a bunch of those shots and was beat up the entire season. So I just can't quite understand how Craig Dickinson, Jeremy O'Day, and the people in the building there have gone from Cody Fajardo is the best thing since sliced bread to now we need to throw him out in the dumpster. And I believe that to be the case that he still has some good football in him because they didn't protect him very well. And he was in a new offense that arguably was not fitted to his best skills. I'm not saying that he can get back to that CFL all-star level in the future, 
I think it's a possibility, though, if he had an offensive coordinator that tailored the offense around him. And that's what Stephen McAdoo did. I know a lot of people in Saskatchewan don't want to hear that, but it's the absolute case, especially when you look at the stats and the production from 2019 versus 2021 and 2022. Do I think the two sides should be together? Definitely not. I think Fajardo needs to do some mental training in terms of being able to hold his emotions in. It's great, obviously, for the media when he wears them on his sleeve and he tells us exactly how he's feeling. But from a leadership perspective, he needs to be better. And I think he would probably admit that. Maybe fatherhood will help him mature more in that way. I'm not saying he was immature, but I think he needs to improve in that area. And I also think he needs to be paired with somebody who can fit the offense to his skill set, whether that's him competing to be a starter or being a backup. I think Fajardo still has good ball in him. He still wanted to go out there and play on that injured knee, but I've said it multiple times all the way back during this season up until now that the Riders, for Fajardo's own good, should have sat him down. We got to remember that. He was playing on a bum knee, trying to be the Fajardo that we came to knew, the dual threat guy that could throw the ball down the field occasionally to the guy that was in the pocket, and we saw it up close and personal at Touchdown Atlantic, JC, and trying to be too far ahead in terms of anticipating throws and throwing into coverage and really just not driving through that leg that was injured or that knee that was injured that he had the brace on. So I think it's best for both parties if they do part ways. But from Saskatchewan's perspective, it's just hard for me to understand how they thought this guy was amazing. Now they want to throw him out and bring in a new quarterback there. I understand that they didn't necessarily play out the way that everybody envisioned in terms of the Rough Riders' goals, but I think you needed to surround him better, protect him better, and understand that Shaq Williams, the two of them, yes, Shaq Evans and Duke Williams, were not healthy for all of last season. Those are two major factors in that offense, and if they ran the ball a little bit better, maybe that could have improved Fajardo's overall production so yes they should go their separate ways but I don't necessarily know if the riders are going to find a guy who has the ceiling that Fajardo showed in 2019. CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi is bullish on CFL expansion stating the league could use what he called a temporary permanent solution in Atlantic Canada to house a stadium in other words enhancing an existing building with a long-term goal of building a permanent facility do you think the cfl is on the right track with expansion i think they are and and let's start with the positives we had a sold out game right in 2022 saskatchewan rough riders and toronto argonauts at raymond field in wolfville nova scotia they're going back to nova scotia this year this time at husky stadium on campus at st mary's university the cfl operations cap as much as it's been panned i think soundly by the media and those directly involved with the league, albeit often not officially on the record is good for expansion because what you're doing to a potential owner is saying, look, this is exactly how much this organization, this team is going to cost to run. The players earnings are already capped. Now we're capping the earnings of those who don't play on the field, right? People in that operations group. I also think that, getting something like revenue sharing would also be very appealing to a potential new owner, knowing that, okay, I'm not only going to get TV money, I'm also going to get some shared revenue to help get this thing 
off the ground, assuming, of course, that an expansion team would would need some help, right? Would not have that money flowing in maybe as strongly as places like Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, Edmonton, etc. That being said, here's the reverse side of it. This is something that I can't wrap my mind around. The CFL in 2005 played the first touchdown Atlantic game at Husky Stadium in Halifax, and they sold it out. I have no idea why this league for the last seemingly almost 20 years at this point was ever under the impression that people out east were going to put together a $200 million pot to build a stadium akin to IG Field or Mosaic Stadium. That was never, ever going to happen. Obviously, there's some hunger for football in Atlantic Canada, but to me, this was literally the only way this was ever going to get done. So kind of similar boys to be perfectly honest regarding how the CFL you know pivoted from what what seemed to be an XFL strategy what seemed to be a global strategy to try to spread the game suddenly they seem to have found the right track with this new CBA doubling down on investing in the players officially partnering with the players revenue sharing right the CBA seemed to be a very po- positive thing you want to celebrate the positivity but also you want to hold the league accountable because these are changes that they should have foreseen coming and they shouldn't have frankly wasted valuable time with stupid things that were never going to work. (laughs) So to me, I congratulate the league on realizing this. I would also point out that to me, it was always common sense that you were going to have to enhance an existing building. And by the way, Why do we need IG Field or Mosaic Stadium out east? We don't. This would be an expansion team. This would be an unprecedented move to have a professional team of this size and scope and scale in Atlantic Canada. Let's have a canary down the coal mine before we ask anybody to spend a ton of money on a stadium. And boys, I wasn't there. You both were. But you both raved about the atmosphere that was at Raymond Stadium. And I think was expanded to about eleven and a half thousand. Now that might be a little bit small. That's a criticism. Well, you know, if they can only sell eleven and a half thousand tickets. Well, first of all, I think if the tickets are priced correctly, you've got revenue sharing, you've got TV money, that might be all the seating that you need for a potential owner to break even. Because let's remember, if we get an, a tenth team in the CFL, suddenly the number of regular season games goes from eighty-one to ninety. To me, if you're growing by more than ten percent, that means that the television money should also grow by more than ten percent. And it also is going to be more attractive for betters who now have five games to place bets on than for Randy Ambrosi. Also, in your interview with him, Dunk mentioned that per game, the league makes more money in the summer than they do in the fall. I don't think he's ever previously come out and said that. Now, it makes sense with beverage sales. I'm sure the CFL makes more money on beer sales than anything during those hot, hot summer months in the fall. People aren't getting out of their seats, at least in Winnipeg, where I am. It's too cold to get out of your seat and buy stuff during the game. You get settled, you throw a blanket on, and you're done. But to me, I, again, I'm glad that they're on this track. I just wish that they'd got there sooner. What is this cold you speak of, Hodge? I'm, yeah, I'm you soft with... Vancouver, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the term, uh, Vancouver soft? Oh, just just absolutely soft as butter. Yeah, I could I could not I could not uh, take in a playoff game at outside at IG Field. I would not survive that. You were cold at Grey Cup, JC. You had to add to your wardrobe. Oh, I would. Oh, I had to I had to buy a winter jacket and long johns and all that stuff. I, I didn't have any of that in my wardrobe. 
gloves? I need own a pair of gloves. No. Uh, I am bullish on Halifax as an expansion destination, much as Randy Ambrosi is, specifically because I, I don't necessarily know if there's interest in the CFL in particular as a product there that is massive and people are clamoring for a team, but there is interest in something going on in that city, right? It's a small city that loves to come out for events. I mean, we just saw, obviously it's a little bit different with hockey and how big that is in this country, but the world juniors and the crowds there, they get huge crowds for, for uh, uh, Canadian premier league soccer there that are unlike anything else in the country, people want to go to events. And so I think this idea of a temporary stadium or a, a, a temporary to permanent transition is a very interesting one because we can finally start the process of potentially getting a team there because there was no appetite in the interviews that Dunk did with the decision makers out there in Atlantic Canada to be able to put together any money for a permanent stadium at this point. And quite frankly, that's well within their rights, right? That's taxpayer dollars. That's a big ask from the CFL in in particular because it's not going to necessarily revolutionize the economy of Halifax to come in there and, and put in a, a CFL team. So this is a step in the right direction, a good idea. I may be the only person on this podcast with experience in a temporary facility because Back when the BC Lions had to vacate BC Place and play at the temporary uh, Empire Stadium, I was still a BC Lions season ticket holder, and that temporary facility was fantastic. Now, was it the the ritziest place I've ever watched a game? No, the seats were hard. They were metal benches, but it was loud in there, I'll tell you that. And it was a great atmosphere to watch a game, particularly because of the location where they put it, which I think is key to this decision as well. Now, my one concern, and and I'd like to hear your guys' input on this as well, is this idea of a temporary stadium and putting an expansion team here. What I would be worried about if I was the CFL is starting this process, you put an expansion team in there in a five-year stadium, and you hope that you get established enough that they will give you a big check at the end of the day to build a permanent facility. Well, what if the government doesn't change? Even if the team is successful, there's no guarantee that they're willing to fork out massive amounts of taxpayer dollars, which is there's been a lot of hesitancy to do that across this country and a number of municipalities, even for well-established NHL teams and things of that nature. If you're stuck in a temporary facility for five, ten years, and at the end of it, when your temporary facility cannot host you anymore, Halifax says, no, thank you. You know, we, we're not paying, pay for it yourself and you can't, I think the only thing worse than not expanding is expanding and then retracting it again. And I don't want to see that happen. You at least have to take the shot. And I think there's an easy solution here. And I sort of want to pave the way for Hodge because we were talking about it in our group chat and I think it was genius, but yet so simple. I will say, I think the one thing that hasn't been talked about here and I've heard some buzz about it and I asked Randy Ambrosi about this is perhaps St. Mary's University the league and the city coming together in some sort of partnership and maybe that's not necessarily money from the city but to get a new or enhanced stadium slash field built there on campus that's where the Rough Riders practice JCU and I were there 
a couple times during the week at Touchdown Atlantic. There was some construction going on around there. And admittedly, there are some buildings that are right beside that stadium. But I think you could expand that stadium big enough in terms of seating that would benefit the Huskies and a potential team called the Atlantic Schooners. So I think that to me would be an easy solution. And Mayor Mike Savage, in my long sit down with him, and again, I appreciate his time, was saying exactly what Ambrosi is saying now. So the CFL has finally realized that we have to play ball by what Halifax wants to do, and then by extension, the region. Mayor Mike Savage is open to a stadium project, but he said it has to be multi-use. It has to be multi-purpose. He talked about national sport bodies wanting to hold training camps or a bunch of practices or even have Halifax as their base for rugby, for example. He noted that, how they've held international rugby matches there. So it wouldn't even necessarily have to be a temporary permanent stadium. It could be a permanent stadium that is on the grounds there, and maybe you have to add some temporary seating to get it up to 15, 20, 25,000 if you can sell that many tickets for the CFL. But the base there. You know, could be eight to ten thousand, something similar to what the Halifax Wanderers have. JC, you and I walk those grounds. Those are temporary stands that are sitting there permanently, and they do have the highest attendance in the Canadian Premier League. Mayor Mike Savage referenced that they're about getting to ten thousand. It's been something that the city has really gotten behind in terms of an event to go out to see. So I think if you have a multi-use facility where it has a base of, let's say, 10,000 fans that the soccer team there can use that can host international rugby matches and other international matches, perhaps soccer or anything in terms of an outdoor sport that the CFL could also use as their home base. I think that's something that could certainly work. But Hodge, you had a very simple way of doing this. So give your idea to the CFL so they can get this done. Because at the end of the day, expansion is going to mean more money for the CFL. More games equals more content equals more money in a variety of ways. Yeah, my idea, and granted, I've not privy to the exact setup at Husky Stadium. I've looked at aerial shots of it online. There are some buildings relatively close to the field, but to me, a very simple possible solution to a long-term stadium in Halifax could be as as simple as, okay, we're not going to build the $200 million building, but we are going to do is spend $20 million installing a 10,000 to 15,000 seat permanent grandstand on one side of the building and inside the, on, like underneath it, similar to, to Tim Hortons field, you could have all of the club amenities, weight rooms, offices, all those things and then five or 10 years down the road, you, you do the same on the opposite side, right? And you, you, you pay for it over a long period of time with, with increased ticket sales. You're going to have the opportunity for the city to make back more money. Bigger crowds in that neighborhood is going to mean more boon for local businesses. So to me, there's ways to do a temporary permanent solution, even just at Husky Stadium, by slowly uh, permanizing, if you will, the seating and upgrading and expanding the seating that is available there. And obviously those amenities would still remain available to the university as well as other large scale events, not dissimilar to how obviously many of the CFL's facilities, most notably Montreal 
are and and Winnipeg to that matter serve the local university population as well two other quick things one thing I think the interest that is needed out east to have a CFL team like I'm talking about general CFL interest is overrated and to that I would point to the half empty gray cup that was just played in Regina what I mean by that is you don't need people out east to be obsessed with the CFL to come and and buy tickets to CFL games you need them to be obsessed with the Atlantic schooners and obviously people out east are extremely passionate about their local teams about their local culture and wanting to have more entertainment options that reflect them right they want to show up and cheer for their team they don't necessarily have to care a lot about the CFL and my Regina example I think speaks to that if, if people in Regina really, truly just loved and cared about the CFL, that stadium would have been packed because all the tickets were sold. The reality is it was half empty because Ryder fans chose to stay home because they didn't want to see Andrew Harris or the Winnipeg Blue Bombers hoist the Grey Cup on their turf, especially given that it was a little chilly that night. Instead, they, they paid for their ticket, but they didn't have it go to go to any use. They, right? they tried to sell it to a bomber fan coming from Winnipeg, and if there were no buyers... They stayed home, and we know that because there were at least 10,000 empty seats in the building by my eye, and that's a low estimate in my opinion. I thought that building was maybe 60% full. So to me, I think that Halifax in the long run would work. Obviously, there's risk to it, but I think it's better to risk it, go for it, and hope it sticks rather than sitting on your hands because let's remember – 12, 15 years ago, we were having these exact same conversations about Ottawa. Oh, Ottawa will never work. Oh, I failed twice. Uh, well, now, is there anybody who out there who has any concerns about the long-term health of the Ottawa Red Blacks? I certainly don't. I don't know anybody who does. The Red Blacks have had 20,000 people plus in that building every single game, despite the fact that they stink like month-old cheese. My goodness, they were awful at home this past year. The last three years, they've been awful at home. And the fans keep showing up, and it's a young fan base. So to me, I think if you build it, they will come. Uh, And I also think one last point, boys, because we should move on. One last point. I think that a smaller building to start could be a good thing. Why? Because scarcity of ticket is a powerful thing. If you go to the local community and you say, okay, we're going to start selling season tickets. Our stadium seat's 11,500, so we're only going to sell 9,000 season tickets. Better sign up quick. Those are probably going to go in a day. Why? Because everyone is worried that they're going to miss out. And then you can start a wait list, right? The Winnipeg Jets, when they came back, had, I think it was 15,000 season ticket holders plus wait list. 12,000, uh, 12, I think was the number. Doesn't matter. Plus wait list. And if you have wait listed season ticket holders, my goodness, all of a sudden you're in a better situation than some of the CFL teams who are currently in the league. Argos head coach Ryan Dinwiddie told our Justin Dunk he's negotiating a contract extension with Toronto as his current deal expires following the 2023 season. While he feels prepared to coach under the last year of his pact, should the boatman feel pressure to get a deal done? Yeah, I I think they probably should. Now, I'm not the biggest Ryan Dinwiddie fan. I, I have some reservations about his control of the sideline, but the success can't be argued with, right? He comes in and they've won the East division two years in a row. Now they have a great cup under their belt. It's clear being around that Argos team 
that the players in the locker room rally around them and, and identify with the way that he coaches and the way that he leads. So if you see all that, you have to get him under contract. And it's very rare for a, a coach or a, a person in management in professional sports to enter the last year of their deal, particularly someone who has just come off massive success. So if you're the Toronto Argonauts, I think it's the best thing for that organization to get Ryan Dinwiddie under an extension to say to all the prospective players coming in, all the guys that you want to resign that, Hey, this is our coach. Uh, He's here for the long term. You can rely on that. And that's the culture we're building. So this has to get done as soon as possible, ideally before free agency in my mind. Mike O'Shea is used to coaching in the last year of his deal, even after having won two straight Craig Cups. But yes, JC, it is rare. And I think it would be smart for the Argos to show Dinwiddie the money because there is that allure of the NFL. Yes, he turned it down once before, but the shine of the Grey Cup can help out in that instance, I think. In talking Dinwiddie, he admitted that he really does like being in Toronto, even though his wife is from Calgary. She misses the mountains and maybe skiing and snowboarding and doing some of that fun stuff out west. But they've come to like Toronto and enjoying all that MLSC has to offer, going to Maple Leafs games, checking out the Raptors. He didn't mention Toronto FC. I don't know if that has to do with the turf relationship there or not. But he mentioned enjoying that. The family settled there, but... You want to show that you're committed to him so that he doesn't start thinking even more about the NFL. But I asked both Dinwiddie and Pinball Clemens that if the NFL came calling, what would happen in that situation? Dinwiddie essentially said he would have to think about it and depends on the offer. And Pinball Clemens said he would not be wanting to hold Dinwiddie back from that. So I certainly think for the reasons JC outlined, especially... If you're going to go with the young quarterback in Chad Kelly and Dinwiddie being a former Boise State star and a pro quarterback in this league himself, you're going to want to know that your head coach is going to be there at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Dinwiddie, I'll say this, as much as there has seemingly been a lack of control along the sidelines, you can't argue with back-to-back East Division, first-place finishes, and a great cup title. You really can. And to me, if I'm the Toronto Argonauts, I'm signing Ryan Dinwiddie to a, at least a one-year extension. He can always try the NFL. There's precedent for that, right? We saw Chris Jones resign from his position as the grand poobah in Saskatchewan ahead of the 2019 season to go to the Cleveland Browns for what was ultimately a, a, a low-ranking job in that organization. And it panned out. So to me, this is a no-brainer. If I'm the Toronto Argonauts, I'm getting a deal done to keep Ryan Dinwiddie in place. I mean, and, and by the way, something I think that we don't talk about enough is the quality of the coaching staff that Ryan Dinwiddie has put together in Toronto. Corey Mace, in my opinion, won the Toronto Argonauts that great cup. His defensive game plan absolutely stifled Winnipeg's offensive attack. It made Zach Kolaris look young and confused and it made him look very ordinary at a time when he was, and it still is, the reigning back-to-back CFL MOP. So I think that Dinwiddie has done a lot of great things. Obviously, he's helped with the development of their quarterbacks, but he's also put together a great staff around him, and I think that the arrow is continuing to point up for him in that organization. It's important for the team to get a deal done. 
I will say this about Ryan Dinwiddie's sideline presence before we move on. I think it's authentically exactly who he is. I had a nice long conversation with uh, one of the longtime play-by-play guys for Boise State last week, and he was raving about Ryan Dinwiddie. And you know what he said to me? He said when he was a player, he wouldn't back down from anyone ever. That's what he is on the sideline, right? Fiery, passionate. I think players gravitate towards that a lot of the time. The NFL scored 43.8 points per game this season, while the CFL averaged 13.1% more at 50.4 per game. This is a reversal of two trends, one of which has had seen NFL scoring increase over the past few years, while CFL scoring decreased. Do you think this is a positive step for the CFL? It is a positive step, and it's great that scoring is up, but a lot of the rules that the CFL put in place before the 2022 season were designed to do so, and especially shortened field. So outside of Nathan Rourke being on record-setting pace for the single-season passing record and single-season passing touchdowns record, both held by the great Doug Flutie, there wasn't that much spectacular offensive football that really stuck out to me. So it's great and all that scoring is up and the league can stand up and pound their chests about it. But again, outside of Rourke, there wasn't a lot of highly entertaining barn burning, passing the ball down the field football. There were certainly moments, but that's not how I view the 2022 season, especially when you take Nathan Rourke out of it. You guys are obviously free to debate or argue that point, but I think overall it's a positive step for the league, but I think we still need to see some better quarterback play to lead to this back and forth type of exciting offensive football that the CFL wants to create and has done so by the rules, but I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing Overall, the rules created more points, not the athletes and people willing to be more open and try new things in their schemes like a Jordan Maximic, the offensive coordinator with the Lions, who was the guy that helped Rourke be on that record pace. Yeah, the CFL this past year had 50 more passing yards per game than the NFL. That being said, I agree with where you're coming from to at least some extent, Dunk. I think that the CFL has certainly transitioned to a game that's more like death by a thousand cuts, right? With seven, eight yard short to intermediate route passes more so than attacking teams down the field. I think that the CFL would obviously from an entertainment standpoint, be better if teams were pushing the ball down the field more, but obviously we are in a position where coaches are scared to get fired. And when you're scared to get fired, you tend to be more conservative, especially if you don't have a ton of confidence In your quarterback, obviously, some teams in the CFL have a ton of confidence in their quarterback. Others, though they will not, of course, admit it publicly, don't necessarily have a ton of confidence in their quarterback. One thing I will say about the NFL that I I saw while, while researching the article that I wrote on this topic was the NFL as a league averaged 4.5 yards per carry this past season, which is the best number in NFL history. Clearly, after a high point of 50 uh pardon me they scored uh almost 50 points per game uh in 2020 this the nfl is now down 10.6 percent since then since that high point 
the game has gotten more run oriented and more conservative. That pendulum is starting to swing back. And obviously teams are having an easier time running the ball than they ever have as defenses have maybe sacrificed some size and sacrificed schematically having more players in the box to deal right with the Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herberts and Josh Allen's of the world who are flinging the ball left, right and center all over the field, constantly attacking deep, deep, deep down the field for those big shots. So I think that the CFL gets an advantage by default because again, the NFL is not pushing the ball down the field maybe as much given how easy it is to run the ball these days. But I agree that I want to see more big plays out of the CFL in 2023. Yeah, I, it's not great for podcast content, but I completely agree with both of your guys' points here. To me, it comes down to quality over quantity. With some of the rule changes that were made last year, we saw a lot more field goals being made. We, uh, you know, a lot was made of, of the fact there's a lot of QB sneak touchdowns, which I don't think is necessarily a do with anything rule oriented. It was just a bit of a fluke last year. But I want to see more plays and I want to see offenses in the CFL become more aggressive. Unfortunately, the reality is that that the the coaches desire not to see turnovers happen and to maintain the efficiency of their QBs and protect the football makes this game less exciting than it used to be when guys were throwing for 5,000 yards and, you know, 35 interceptions at the same time. Because interceptions are big plays too, right? I want to see quarterbacks that push the ball down the field, who throw in high volumes, who have some turnovers, who are, are – teams are willing to have that happen in exchange for having many big plays. And, and we saw it with Nathan Rourke. Now he was extremely efficient, the most accurate quarterback we've seen in a CFL season in history, but he also threw at an incredibly high volume would have had he played a full season, probably had the most touchdown passes of any quarterback in the CFL. He probably would have also had the most interceptions, to me, that number, the most interceptions, is not the important part. It's the difference between the touchdowns to interceptions. And right now, guys are throwing for nine interceptions in a season and 19 touchdowns. I want to see us take more shots, raise both those numbers up, because when you've got touchdowns and picks, it's more exciting for the fans. Unfortunately, on the coach's side, you don't want to have those turnovers because you don't want to potentially lose because of them and then lose your job down the line. So it's a difficult balance to have, but we do need more exciting down-the-field shots in CFL football. Totally agree, JC. There were a lot of exciting plays. Zach Caleros created a bunch with Winnipeg. Of course, Dalton Schoen led the league in receiving. Geno Lewis is worth the price of admission. Tim White had a breakout year for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Jalen Ackland did his thing, even though his buddy Jeremiah Masoli was largely sidelined for most of the season in the nation's capital. Keen Schaefer-Baker was a highlight reel who should have been fed the football more in Saskatchewan. And it would have been better if Lucky Whitehead was healthy, but that Lions offense, even with Rourke sideline, was still at least interesting. A young playmaker emerged in Keon Hatcher there as well. So there were guys that are producing these plays, but I just don't think it's as often as the CFL or the trio of us on this podcast would like. Hodge, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the NFL actually did have a higher number of average touchdown passes per game, right? 
Yes, this, the NFL by, I think it was by a margin of one-tenth of a touchdown pass per game, did have more. So NFL teams, despite having fewer yards, are putting the ball in the end zone through the air at least a little more than CFL teams. If I remember right, I think it was 2.4 to 2.5. Now, some people might think that that's really small, but you consider the play clocks in the NFL are longer, 40 seconds, and it should be easier, hypothetically, to throw touchdown passes in the CFL because the end zone is bigger. So I think this whole shift to being very conservative, and I understand it if you're a head coach or a play caller, especially on offense, or even a quarterback, that you don't want to be known as turnover prone. But if you look at some of the numbers in the NFL, let's say a Josh Allen, yes, he just turned the ball over three times in a wild card game that really the Bills should have blown out the Dolphins, but they were in the game because of those turnovers. He threw... I believe it was 35 touchdown passes during the regular season and had 14 picks. He lost five fumbles, but still that's the type of difference in terms of touchdown interception ratio that JC is talking about. And I'm obviously talking about one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL, but it's not too long ago that we saw a season somewhat like that in the CFL. Bo Levi Mitchell had a season like that when he won MLP. He had touchdown passes in the thirties. And I believe his interceptions were just inside the double digits. So that's what I think is a little bit lacking from the CFL. There are still exciting plays. There was some great finishes. That is not to be debated. There were a lot of games that went right down to the wire in the CFL. There's just not those big splash plays, as many of them as I think the CFL traditionalists would like to see. It's time for Hodges Heritage Moment, boys. On this day in 2019, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders promoted Assistant Vice President Jeremy O'Day to the role of General Manager. The Buffalo native had spent the previous eight years working in Saskatchewan's front office following a 12-year career playing along the team's offensive line. The Riders finished 13-5 and in O'Day's first season at the helm, securing first place in the West Division for the first time since 2009. The club made an appearance in the West Final again in 2021, though they missed the postseason this past year after finishing 6-12. and Does O'Day's team have to finish in the playoffs this season for him to keep his job beyond the 2023 season? I think absolutely yes, yes that is a requirement, and I will go a step further. I think the Saskatchewan Rough Raggers have to make the West Final for those guys to be safe. Let's go to the three-minute drill, boys. The Edmonton Elks signed former all-star defensive back Luchez Purifor after he was released by the BC Lions. Is that a good fit? Yes. Edmonton's secondary was too old this past season. Luchez Purifoy, though I think he is 30, has a lot of good game left in him. Super versatile, super physical, one of my favorite DBs in the CFL. Theo Benedict and Giovanni Manu, two top-ranked offensive linemen in the 2023 CFL draft at a UBC, have deferred to 2024. Is that the right decision? Yeah, I I don't know the logic behind that that process, why those guys chose to go back. Go back. Presumably, they want to complete their degrees, but you could do that when you're still in the CFL draft. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Both of these guys were probably gone in the first two rounds. Theo Benegut still might go to the NFL because that's a different process than the CFL draft. So it was an interesting decision, to say the least, for both of these highly touted offensive linemen out of UBC. Eugene Lewis, Three Down Nation's number two ranked pending free agent, remains unsigned by the Montreal Alouettes. Do you think he'll end up 
hitting the open market. It's a possibility. He has had two one-on-one meetings with general manager Danny Machocha, one before the league's winter meetings and one after. And Lewis is currently based out of Montreal. So I think he would like to stay there, but it's very clear he wants to get paid. You can see, just look at his Twitter feed and the numbers that he's spitting out in terms of the production versus how many quarterbacks have been throwing him the ball. So until he's signed, there is a chance. And I think as we go along here and get closer to that period where it's the legal tampering period, I know the CFL doesn't like that term, but it is what it is, then... Yes, there's a possibility Lewis could actually hit the open market. The Blue Bombers re-signed offensive tackles Stanley Bryant on the left side and Jamarcus Hardrick on the right side to contract extensions. That was expected though, right, Hodge? It did surprise me a little bit. I knew Hardrick was always going to be back, but Bryant, I got to say, obviously he just won most outstanding offensive linemen. Hall of Fame career, but he's going to be 37 next year. I wonder if the XFL and USFL weren't around if they'd have gone with a younger option at left tackle. Longtime CFL quarterback Michael Bishop has been elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. Is he a worthy selection? He absolutely has had a fantastic career down there at Kansas State University. Also, one of the strongest arms, pound for pound, that has ever played up here in the CFL. I believe he's one of the few who was able to huck a ball and hit that uh, sound system up there at McMahon Stadium back when it was still hanging up top in Calgary. Brett Jones, the 31-year-old former CFL Most Outstanding Offensive Lineman who has since spent seven seasons down in the NFL, says he's open to returning to the CFL. Do you think we'll see him sign anywhere? He's reportedly wanting to go to medical school, but if he does not get into medical school, I can't think of a worse place uh, for him, or, or I can't think of a better place for him to be than the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, his hometown team, who desperately needs an upgrade over the offensive line. Can't do much worse than that. Speaking of the Riders, they lost defensive line coach Ben Olsen to the University of the Incarnate Word. Is that a big loss? It is a big loss. Ben Olsen has done great work with that defensive line in recent years. You see the progress and the breakout guys that they've had as of late. You know, Pete Robertson and Anthony Lanier this season, Jonathan Woodard. He's played a big role in that. He's still going to have an impact on Canadian football, though. Texas State's Samuel Obion just transferred to Incarnate Word earlier today, so he'll be working with Ben Olsen down there. The Edmonton Elks signed all-star defensive tackle Jake Serezna to a two-year contract extension. Is that a good move? To me, Jake Serezna might not only be the most disruptive interior defensive lineman in the CFL, he might be the most disruptive defensive player. He was unbelievable last year. It's a shame he missed time due to injury, but to me, I think Jake Serezna is criminally underrated. Chris Streveler re-signed with the New York Jets. Do you think he'll see the field more in 2023? It's a possibility, but that's going to be tough. We've talked about Strevler before on this podcast ad nauseum. We all know his limitations as a passer. If he's not getting the opportunity yet, especially with the chaos in that quarterback room this past season in New York, I have a hard time seeing him get an increased amount of playing time once they've sorted out those issues. 
Montreal Alouettes general manager Danny Machocha said he feels confident that the team will be able to re-sign Trevor Harris before free agency. Do you agree, Hodge? I do. I think that Harris will be with the Alouettes in 2023. I think Montreal is prepared to open the vault for him. And I think that Harris knows that Montreal is a great fit for him personnel-wise. And they're obviously a team that's always believed in what he brings to the table. University of Manitoba Bisons have successfully recruited Lamar Goods, a former four-star recruit of the Florida Gators and the son of former CFL All-Star Benny Goods. Is that a big addition for the Bisons? It's a huge addition. Lamar Goods was a legitimate recruit at Florida. Didn't play a whole lot in his true freshman season. Ended up transferring to Northern Colorado. Then had some personal issues. Took a step away from the game. For him to come back with the University of Manitoba, they're landing a kid who could be an impact player from day one for that program in the Canada West. Former Saskatchewan Huskies quarterback Mason Nias was dropped from the Riders' negotiation list after he turned down a contract offer from the team. Is that a surprise? He's reportedly pursuing a career in teaching, which seems to be where his passion lies. Fantastic that he has found that. I will say, though, a Sasky boy turning down the Saskatchewan Rough Riders is always a surprise. Best of luck to Mason Nias for what's next to him. The Ottawa Red Blacks expect Jeremiah Mazzoli to be fully healthy for training camp and have signed him to an extension through 2024. Is that a good move? I think it is. Mazzoli showed us everything he needed to at the start of last year. Hopefully he's back full strength from that injury. But if you have a franchise quarterback, you don't want to give him up. And it's very hard if he comes back and has a career year next year to get him back under contract. It's better to do it early rather than late. The BC Lions signed receiver Jared Smart, the son of Keith Smart, who made the game-winning shot for Indiana in the 1987 NCAA championship game over Syracuse. I'm not a basketball guy, Hodge, but do you remember that shot? I mean, it happened before I was born, but I did look at it on YouTube yesterday when the press release came out from the Lions. Gotta say, it's a nice shot. Orlando Steinauer said the Hamilton Tiger Cats are still working on an extension with Bully by Mitchell after having him in for a visit last month. Do you think they'll get something done? I think they will. It seems like such a natural fit for him to be in Hamilton based on the other suitors out there. I just don't see Bo Levi Mitchell going to Saskatchewan right now with, you know, their head coach and their GM on the final years of their contract, that offensive line, which nobody's certain quite how they're going to improve it. He has a much better situation in Hamilton, a much better shot at a great cup there. That seems to be a perfect fit for me. Canadian defensive back Tyrell Ford started only one game last year for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, yet he signed with the Green Bay Packers. Was that a surprise? I suppose it might have been a surprise to some extent just because he didn't have that crazy pedigree. That being said, in the one game he started, I thought he was better than either of the corners who ended up playing for Winnipeg in the playoffs. So best of luck to Ford, native of Niagara Falls, Ontario. Good luck to him in Green Bay. JC, last one. You were down in Texas at the College Gridiron Showcase this past week. Who are some prospects that stood out to you? It was a fantastic event, as always, with a lot of CFL scouts down there. Every team represented, a couple GMs even. 11 Canadians on display. I thought a couple of the guys who stood out, 
the Guelph cornerback, Siraman Harrison Bagiogo. He looked the part down there. He's a good press corner, got some NFL interest because of his size and length. It's going to be interesting to see how he translates to more of a zone system in the CFL, but he looks like a stud against American competition. His teammate, Clark Barnes, the receiver out of Guelph, did everything that I wanted to see from him after missing much of last year due to a high ankle sprain. He's going to be a guy who gets comped a lot to Keon Schaefer-Baker for coming out of Guelph with, with not a lot of production, but incredible athletic talents. And then finally, my own alma mater, UBC, had a player down there, defensive end Lake Corte Moore. Maybe doesn't move or bend quite like an NFL player or, or stand out in that regard against that competition. But boy, is this kid strong, Hodge. Just bull strong, pushed around Division One offensive tackles like they were nothing in the scrimmage. He took a four-year starter from Temple and had like a Reggie White hump move, just ragdolled him, threw him into the quarterback. It was probably the single most impressive feat of strength I saw the entire time I was down there. He'll be very highly coveted in the upcoming CFL draft. We thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation Podcast. We will join you next week for another episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.